Today's scripture reading comes from Genesis 49 in the NIV. Then Jacob called for his sons and said, Gather around so I can tell you what will happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, sons of Jacob. Listen to your father Israel. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, the first sign of my strength, excelling in honor, excelling in power. Turbulent as the waters, you will no longer excel, for you went up into your father's bed, onto my couch, and defiled it. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are weapons of violence. Let me not enter their council. Let me not join their assembly, for they have killed men in the anger and hamstrung oxen as they pleased. Cursed be their anger, so fierce and their fury so cruel. I will scatter them in Jacob and disperse them in Israel. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's club, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness who dares to rouse him. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nation shall be his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, and colt to the choicest a branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun. You will live by the seashore and become a haven for ships. His border will extend towards Sidon. Issachar is a raw-boned donkey lying down among the sheep pens. When he sees how good it is resting place and how pleasant is his land, he will bend his shoulder to the burden and submit to forced labor. Dan will provide justice for his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan will be a snake by the roadside, a viper along the path that bites the horse's heels so that its riders tumble backwards. I look for your deliverance, Lord. Gad will be attacked by a band of raiders, but he will attack them at their heels. Asher's food will be rich. He will provide delicacies fit for a king. Naphtali is a doe set free that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful vine, a fruitful vine near a spring whose branches climb over the wall. With bitterness, archers attacked him. They shot at him with hostility, but his bow remained steady. His strong arm stayed limber because of the hand of the mighty one of Jacob. Because of the shepherd, the rock of Israel, because of your father's God who helps you, because of the Almighty who blesses you with blessings of the skies above, blessings of the deep springs below, blessings of the breast and the womb, your father's blessings are great, greater than the blessings of the ancient mountains. Then the bounty of the age-old hills. Let all these Rest on the head of Joseph, on the brow of the prince among his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he devours the prey, and in the evening he divides the plunder. 
All these are the twelve tribes of Israel, and this is what their father said to them when he blessed them, giving each the blessing appropriate to him. In Hebrews 11, we read, By faith Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons, and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. In the story of Jacob, we can learn many things about our Christian faith that should kick us into action. So today we are going to explore this life in three stories, all focusing on one relationship, that of Jacob and his brother, to discover what some of those truths are. The first story of Jacob that I want to share is the one that most people think of when this character comes into our minds. Uh, You can find it in Genesis 27. It takes place when Jacob was a young man and his father Isaac, who we mentioned briefly two weeks ago, uh, was getting on in years. Isaac had lived a long life at this point, following on in his father's footsteps as best he could, meaning in a less important sense that he tried to pull off that same thing that Abraham had done with Sarah, where he tried to pass her off as his sister instead of as her wife to avoid getting into a fight. Uh, surely there's probably better things, uh, that a boy could have done to emulate his old man than doing the same thing with his, uh, then wife after the fact. But, uh, the more important similarities between Isaac and Abraham, and the thing that leads us into our story today is that Isaac, like his dad, also had two important sons and only one of whom could go on to carry on the family legacy. Uh, There was Esau, the older, a man described as burly and outdoorsy. Uh, You can picture the kind of guy that could drop a deer from 500 yards just by flexing at it hard enough. And then he also had Jacob, who we are told was not that. (laughs) But our first story when it begins, uh, Isaac is nearing his deathbed. Then the same is now coming up on his end. There is that legacy to keep in mind, answering that question of who will take up the torch after we are gone. And this this is a question that Isaac would have been particularly keen on answering, more so than probably most of us, I dare say, because Isaac had been promised by God that through his descendants, a great nation would be born, a great nation that would one day save the world, a nation that we Christians know Jesus Christ himself would be born to many generations later. So, yeah, the stakes of this decision were rather high, and Isaac knew it. And so Isaac, nearing his last, found himself grappling with that weighty question. Which of his progeny should it be that takes on that great responsibility? His strong, chiseled Adonis of a son Esau, a natural leader who others followed without question? Or Jacob, who at this point in the story is best described as the other one? And so we read that there is no deliberation. Isaac, frail and blind, calls his eldest son with the sole request that he also brings some stew because always good to multitask, I guess. And that is where the shenanigans begin. Because enter Rebecca, 
Isaac's long-suffering wife. For while Esau, that great mountain of a man, was his father's first choice, Rebecca instead had a different favorite pick. And so quickly we read she cooks up the meal that Isaac requested. And then she calls to her preferred son Jacob, explaining to him her master plan that sounds more like something that you would see in Scooby-Doo than read about in this holiest of books. Jacob, she says, Jacob, here is what you are going to do. You are going to take this food that I made up and you are going to go to your father with it, pretending to be your older brother. And you are going to receive Esau's blessing in his place. And presumably Rebecca's eye twinkles as she tells her son this most brilliant of schemes. Now, if you are ever looking for an interesting bunch of stories when you read your Bible, I strongly encourage you to give Jacob a look. Because while he may not be cut from the same cloth as his brother, over the next 30 or so chapters that he is uh, in the Bible, we do come to learn that Jacob is, if nothing else, incredibly wily. The kind of guy that looks to undermine everything, even family and good sense, if it means he'll get ahead in the end. So instead of dismissing his mother's plan out of hand, both for being a little simplistic, as well as, let's face it, super morally questionable, Jacob answers her instead like this. But Mom, you can hear him say in exactly that tone of voice, but Mom, Esau is the kind of man that looks like he was born a master lumberjack. How could I ever pretend to be him? To which Rebecca, in what is possibly the greatest response in dialogue in the entirety of the Bible, says to her son, Ah, your dad's pretty much blind. We'll just stick some deer hides on you and it'll be fine. And so... That is what they do. And million to one, it actually works. Jacob receives his father's blessing, meaning from that moment on, in Jacob's heart of hearts, he knows that one day the Israelite people who would save the world would be born from his descendants. And predictably next, when his Paul Bunyan-esque brother returns home, promptly Jacob finds himself on the run for his life. That is the first story of Jacob for us to keep in mind today. Now on to the second. And this one takes place a couple of chapters later in Genesis 32. Uh, many years have passed since Jacob was run out of Dodge, and in that time, a lot has happened. Jacob met an uncle and worked for him for a good long while. He started the proud tradition of upward mobility uh, by marrying the boss's daughters, which is a whole story for a different day. And then Jacob managed by what I can only assume to be a combination of God's help, as well as a poor understanding of genetics, to become rich enough to alienate the same uncle slash boss slash father-in-law to the point where again he feels it prudent to run for his life yet again and probably most importantly for history's sake in there but less importantly for our stories today uh, Jacob also in this period of time had a whole pile of kids a pile of course being the correct collective term when the number of kids you have is in the double digits but this this is where the story is when we come to our next outing with Jacob and his brother Esau. 
Uh, he is speedily traveling through the countryside. Jacob is with his wives, children, and flocks of animals in tow, and probably some herdsmen as well, unsure of just where they are going next. And so, after much turmoil and uncertainty, Jacob makes the decision to risk returning home to where years ago he had wronged the kind of man who could snap someone like Jacob in half one-handed like a twig. And so you can imagine that this decision was not made lightly, as Jacob had no idea whether or not Esau would still be out for his blood at this point or not. But again, Jacob was always the clever one. And so as they approach his old home, he figures to himself, it may be best to lay a bit of groundwork. And so we read that out he sends an envoy, an ambassador to let his brother, who in his mind is a force that is strong and terrible as a great typhoon, know that uh, he will soon be in the area. And more importantly, that he has lots of stuff that he is willing to hand over in order to smooth things out and save his own neck. But this, we are told, doesn't have the intended effect. As the next thing we read, the ambassador returns to let Jacob know that his brother and four piles of piles of men, 400 men, are on the way to where Jacob is at that very moment to say hello. And personally... I cannot say, because I have not really been in many fights in my life. I think the last one I have ever been into was in high school, and that one got noped out of existence by a teacher pretty quick. But I think I understand the whole process of a fight well enough to gather that Jacob, with his 10 to 11 underage children, two wives, and uh, flocks of small herd animals and whatever herdsmen were tagging along, was quite possibly at a disadvantage in this potential dust-up based purely off my sophisticated assessment that 400 is the bigger of the two numbers. Feel free to disagree with me on that, but that is my read on the situation. And so we have to imagine as this horde approaches with the human embodiness of manliness leading at its head that Jacob must have been getting his heart rate up just a little bit. And we see that is true because act terrified, we read Jacob certainly did. As a good chunk of the rest of the chapter is about him splitting all of those who are following him into groups and scattering them to the wind if uh, in case things went south, then choosing an obscenely large group of animals to act as a bribe to stave off his brother's anger. And then in the midst of that, he prays, what is possibly one of the most interesting prayers in the entirety of the Bible, because he essentially tells God point blank that it was to him, Jacob, who received Isaac's blessing, and that means that it's to him, Jacob, who God had promised to build a great nation that would change the world. And as such, Jacob rationalizes as the prayer goes on, God really needs to protect him now if he doesn't want to be a liar. And so he also throws in a few niceties in there, of course, but given how it is that he received that blessing of Isaac in the first place, the nerve of Jacob in that moment is astounding. 
And that is to say nothing of the fact that it kind of ignores that most, if not all of his kids, are already born at this point, which means that God's technically already fulfilled that promise to build a great nation out of Jacob already. And it's with all this panic in the background that we come into what is quite possibly one of the most interesting passages in the entire Bible. For as Jacob's group continues on, they come across a river in their way, and everyone else makes it across first, but by the time it comes to Jacob's turn to wade through, it's dark, and so he decides to instead wait until morning. And then, as he is camping out, something bizarre happens. We read a man appears unnamed and begins to wrestle with Jacob and wrestle they do and on and on they go all through the night each unable to subdue the other to which finally as dawn is upon them the stranger shows that there's probably more to him than meets the eye because we read that he simply touches Jacob and pop out goes his hip and in that moment it is made clear that the whole night Jacob had been grappling with God himself. And so to commemorate this, God blesses Jacob in the same way that he had blessed Jacob's grandparents two generations before, by giving him a new name. And from that moment on, Jacob was also known as Israel, meaning the one who struggles with God. The name that in time his descendants would solidify behind into the great people that God had promised uh, Jacob. That's the second of the stories of Jacob that I wanted to share this morning. And the third is a simple summary of what comes next. Uh, You can find it in Genesis 33. Uh, At some point after the sun comes up, Israel crosses the river, presumably uh, not easily given that his hip was put out the night before and soon thereafter he finds himself closing in on Esau's entourage and the moment Israel sees that great host he does something that I can't really say is the bravest thing a man has ever done when facing what he thinks is his certain death because we read he essentially pulls a reverse titanic putting the women and children before him between him and his brother between him and what he sees to be his impending death and then the unexpected happens and when Esau approaches far from being angry instead we see that this great lion of a man embraces his brother and asks who these women and children are and This is all while his personal army looks on. And while the two do in time go their separate ways, they do so on more or less okay terms. Their descendants are a bit less cool with one another, but that's many generations down the road. When we leave the brothers, things are more or less all right. That is the third story of Israel and his brother that I wanted to tell today. Now, we said at the beginning of the message that in our story of Jacob, there are a lot of truths to learn about the Christian faith. And that is surprisingly true, even if it doesn't really seem like there is much good to get from spending time with someone like Jacob. Because let's be honest, when we read about the patriarchs, that is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the men whose descendants would go on to become the Israelite people, 
Jacob holds his own when it comes to being morally questionable. He lies, he cheats, he's self-serving and underhanded, he is cowardly, and while we didn't really talk too much about it, but that I think the scripture reading of today shows pretty clearly, trust me when I say that he treats his children pretty poorly, or I suppose at least the ones he doesn't like, <laughs> he treats them pretty poorly, much like his father did him and his fathers before him. Jacob is not really the best man to look up to in the Bible. And really going through the book of Genesis, I'm pretty sure the writer agrees with that assessment of him as well. But here is the odd thing about the book of Genesis and the patriarchs. In them, and more particularly almost because of their awfulness, we actually learn truths about God that are far more valuable than what we would have learned if these men would have been perfect, pious, little evangelical saints such as we surely are all listening to this today. Because it's in their messiness that we see the clearest proof that God keeps his promises to us. And that's a cornerstone truth of Christianity if there ever was one. After all, if there ever was a man who you think it would be a-okay for God to not hold up his end of the bargain with, of course it would be Jacob. He only had the blessing of his father that he would be through who the peoples of Israel would come and in time Jesus Christ himself uh, who would bless the world. He only had that blessing because he tricks a blind man in a way that is typically reserved for an over-the-top villain in a Hanna-Barbera cartoon. But even still, God is faithful to his word. When Jacob prays, God answers, even though technically he doesn't even have to in that case. More than even that, as you heard from our scripture reading today, Jacob's children do go on to show that God keeps his promises as well, as each of them go on to become a great part of Israel as a result. We'll get into this in a few weeks, but Israel in the Bible is made up of 12 tribes, all of which are the descendants of Jacob's children. It's, it's for this reason that in Hebrews 11, we read that Jacob praises God in his final days, that God keeps his promises, even to people like Jacob. If that's true, then why should we ever think that God will not hold up his promises in Scripture with us as well? Beyond this, it's also in this messiness of Jacob that we see another truth for our Christian faith as well. Throughout the story of Jacob, we see time and again in the stories we cover today, as well as a lot of other ones, that Jacob is a man who often finds himself struggling with God. In these three stories alone, Jacob throws God's promises back in his face as a sort of get-out-of-jail-free card, and then he also literally gets into a fight with God. <laughs> but again, far from just writing him off and moving on, God chooses to remain with Jacob. This is huge for us Christians today because what that means is something unbelievably important. It means we can complain to God. It means we can struggle with God. 
It means that God won't abandon us if we are not happy about our lot in life 100% of the time. What it means is that God wants to build a relationship with us that is real enough that it will last through the tough times as well. What it means is that far from being one-sided, our relationship with God is an actual relationship. The kind where there can be strife, but that in the end you know that the other still has your back. How amazing is that? In the story of Jacob, there is much to learn about our Christian faith. There is much to be thankful for and much to live for as a result. So I say, in light of these two truths, we choose to live our Christian lives accordingly. That God will keep his promises with us means that we can live with reassurance that the effort we put in following our Lord is not for nothing and that it will bear fruit. So live according to that. Aim big when it comes to following our God. And that God will not abandon us if we pick issues with our lot in life means that we can live in faith that God doesn't want a superficial or one-sided relationship with us at all, but instead a real one that can actually weather the storms of life. So again, live accordingly. Pray not only pleasant things, but also the depths of your soul in all of its angst keeping that security that you have with God in mind to spur you on to actually share who you are with God through the life of Jacob. We learn these two truths. We learn many things other, but these are ones that I think are particularly important for us to hear today. So thanks be to God for that.